something that we have to wrestle with differently about this movement is that the way in which the system works is quite different and has to be analyzed in previous times. It's not simply an incident of, you know, a black man being basically lynched in the street by a cop putting his knee on the throat. It's far that happened and it's absolutely horrific. But why is it that you have the over-policing of these areas? Why is it that you have not only disproportionate policing in Black community, but also police brutality amongst poor people in general? Inform, inspire, and evolve. Welcome to Creating Community for Good, a podcast dedicated to philanthropy, the love of humankind. Join host Lindsay Simons in a friendly conversation about contributing to good as we bring together community, positivity, and energy to the business of generosity. Welcome your host, Lindsay Simons. Welcome everybody to Creating Community for Good. Thank you so much for joining us today. This conversation is going to be unlike some of the others in that there are two guests here and both of them are long-term friends of mine from college where we had many late, late, late night debates at IHOP and other places <laughs> and uh, about race, about equity, about gender, about music, about food, about many things and art. But fundamentally, one of the conversations that has always run through our friendships has been around race and equity and class and how do we move the ball forward. So my guests are two dear friends, Quentin Wheeler-Bell and Eliza Fox. And I want to allow you the space to introduce yourself, to just share your uh, background, your training, and overall perspective on Black Lives Matter. Well, thank you very much, Lindsay, for inviting us here. First, I would like to say I would like to give a rest in peace to our dear friend Grant Wiley, who was one of the main reasons why we are good friends and why both brought us together. And unfortunately, he tragically died. And in many ways, he is responsible for not only our friendship, but in much of what I do in my life. And for me, I am a professor at Indiana University in educational policy studies and leadership with a focus on the role of education in a democracy and creating education for human emancipation. And overall, I look at myself as an activist and deeply connected to a long tradition of the Black tradition, the Black radical tradition, and thinking about the role in which we can create a more just and equitable society. Thank you, Quentin. So happy to have you here. Thank you. Liza. So I'm Liza Fox, and I, I do greatly appreciate having this conversation with you two and the opportunity to, especially after these recent tumultuous weeks and months for our for our society, but also after almost a decade, really, of, for the three of us to really get together and sit down and talk. So this, this is going to be awesome. I come to this conversation just as, as an individual and as a dear friend with both of you. I, my pro- professional background is in policy, public policy and, and international relations. Um, I have a lot of experience at the state government level. And that, but now I live in Washington, D.C., but I actually run a small business that has nothing to do with policy or politics. It's, a, it's called Elemento, and it's a, it's a club for young families um, to, to be together and connect and breathe a little bit easier and have a lot of fun. So I, I've gone from a, from a background in policy and activism to a current environment of local business and community. 
Thank you both for being here and for being a part of this conversation so that we can sort of explore our perspectives, what we're seeing across the country and what we're seeing in our own lives and from our own pedagogies, how we make a difference and how we we change for progress for, for good. So thank you all and let's get started. So um, on the run, listening to song and just reflecting on life. And I got very emotional and teary for no, like no song in particular, but it just, it finally it hit me again in another way. And I was thinking about Grant and I was thinking about the dynamics that we've had in our country. I was thinking about other people that I've loved. Of course, you too, obviously. And that's why I reached out to you was to say like, you know, I don't know exactly what to think of it all and how it's different. There's frustration around, you know, this is another point in history that we've seen a black person murdered and we've seen like a lot of press around it, but it does feel different. And I'm sure that it's compounded by the experience with COVID and SFP and everybody's, the disparities of implications of the crisis. So I thought of you and I thought, I thought at least I would love to talk with you too and hear your opinions, hear your thoughts. Definitely. I, Quinn, I was telling Lindsay right before this that I, happy to have a conversation and happy to be a part of it and want to have the conversation. So I've done a lot of thinking over the years, including this, especially right now, but about how, well, I guess maybe what, what I would call the beginning of my personal racial awakening. <laughs> so I grew up in a small rural town in Colorado where there wasn't diversity. There were actually probably about 25% of the population is Latino or Mexican American. And that was just kind of a non, like, we didn't really even talk about that. I didn't realize that a quarter of my friends in school were of Mexican descent. They were just friends. There wasn't a racial divide there, or at least not for the kids. I don't know about the adults. So, but for the most part, I literally grew up not thinking about race. And I'm not saying, oh, I was colorblind. Like, I just literally didn't think about it. And of course, my my parents, their hearts are in the right place. They taught me all the right things about equality, but they had similar backgrounds to me and those kind of beliefs, they, they do, I think, hold equitable beliefs. They were never challenged because they grew up in similar small towns, predominantly white. And it just wasn't something we thought about. And definitely not something we talked about openly besides the cursory should and shouldn'ts. So it wasn't until I went to college that I actually really got to know people of color and different colors. And I remember two pivotal moments. One was one of my Black girlfriends talked about being black all the time. Just, you know, just just phrases or or distinctions like, oh, a black girl would never do that or that kind of thing. And I just remember sitting back and thinking, I I never think about being white. I because I guess I grew up in the situation where I was the default, I never thought about it. I'm like, why does she talk about being black all the time? And it took me a while to to learn and in talking with her about she's reminded every single day in a lot of ways that she's black, or at least that she's different than quote unquote norm or the, you know, she's just reminded that she's different. So I remember talking through that. And then I also, for the first time, I went to this conference that took place in Cleveland and I didn't even think about it going. It was a, it was a conference about fostering peace and teaching kids peaceful strategies for their own inner peace, as well as global peace. It was a really hippie thing, but I went as the college student kind of proctor for this conference, but it was a high school conference in Cleveland. So it was pretty much 100% Black students and 100% almost Black administrators. So being in that room with about two or 300 Black people, 
was the first time I had ever, ever been the minority in a room, ever. I mean, besides being a woman, you do feel some difference being the only woman in the room or one of a few, but that was the first time that I felt what it was really like to be different in an outnumbered situation or minority situation. And so just those two experiences of, for the first time, really getting to know some minority friends and talking to them about this and thinking about race and then having it being kind of thrown in your face all day, every day, and then experiencing it actually being the minority, those were eye-opening for me. I think they're just a lot of my friends and family, my white friends and family, that just not ever, either never had those experiences, never been open to them, or just haven't used the brain power and had the kind of journey into empathy and sympathy for that experience. So you don't feel like when you're connecting with other white friends, Caucasian friends, that they have that same level of experience of self-reflection of being the, the outsider? Some do, but lots don't. And I have, of course, talked to white people who have negative feelings about minorities or pretty much anybody different from them in a variety of ways. But I'm talking like the, the majority of the people that I, inter- the white people that I interact with just don't think about race in the same way because they have never had to. Mm-hmm. It's thrown in their face every day like it is to people who, you know, who are a minority. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that perspective. Quentin, what's your perspective on race? Like, did you, was there ever a time when you didn't have a clue that you were a color? Like, was there ever a time when... Like when I didn't know I was Black in America? Yeah, or that that was a thing. You know, what was it like as a, maybe a child? Like, do you have a memory of knowing that, like, that everybody's exactly the same? And then an occurrence when you realize that color was part of identity and it was given value by those around you. And then, you know, you ultimately attribute value to it as a human develops intellectually. I think growing up Black in America, it's not a question of coming to the realization. It's sort of parents know, especially Black parents know that unless you teach your child this at a young age, you're not teaching them how to survive, right? So it is a matter of sort of in, in real cases of life and death or how to navigate a world in which you were treated differently. So for us growing up, it was, it was like breathing, right? Like, like Liza was talking about when she was talking about our friends, just talking about, you know, black people don't do this, white people do this or whatever. That was sort of as common as asking the question of how are you doing today, right? Whether it be your grandparents, your parents, whatever, it was, you lived it. And also, you know, for my parents, they understood that they have to make sure from an early age that my brother and I grow up with a positive sense of Blackness, but also understanding that you're never limited by your Blackness. So it wasn't, the hard thing that I had to learn was not how to be Black. It was how to negotiate the landfills of being Black in America. So it wasn't an awakening to that I'm Black. It was an awakening to the real life repercussions of what that means throughout my life that was always sort of the touchstone. But for for me growing up, it was always, you have a moral obligation to make the world better. Like you are a part of a history of people who suffer or face oppression, both past and currently. You now have that obligation to carry that weight for what you do to make things better moving forward. So that was a cornerstone all, you know, ever since I can remember. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
I had a similar impression that my parents imposed on me was, you know, it's your obligation to make the world a better place. And we grew up where my parents are passionate about travel and we had the luxury to do so and went to South Africa when I was 10 to visit a woman that my mom grew up knowing as a foreign exchange student when she was in high school. And we sort of did an exploratory learning of what happened in South Africa with apartheid and then peace and reconciliation that had happened thereafter and was continuing at the time. And when I was exposed to Soweto, where where all Black people were together there, separated by purely poverty. It was put in place to divide the community. I'm listening to Trevor Noah's book right now on Born a Crime is his book that's a couple of years old. And it is very insightful, especially during this time to understand what happened in South Africa and how that might apply to what's happened in America as well. And Soweto is this place where there's you know, high poverty rates and they hardly have tin roofs over their heads. And it broke my heart as a 10-year-old totally unable to understand what was going on here and why there was such poverty, but yet there was such joyfulness as well. And every single person we walked by seemed very happy in their own space, whether they're interacting with us or not, but they appeared to be joyful in the moments that we were walking through and you know, on, our, on our mission. And it was an interesting time for me to consider what it's like to have and have not, what it's like to, you know, consider community, styles of community, ways of living and expressing, ways of finding joyfulness, where they are and where they're not. And I came back and was basically forever impacted and changed by that experience. That was the first time I realized what it was to have privilege and power as a white person, especially in America. And it was a hard time to try to understand that. My, I'm not sure I was intellectually even ready for it. And I'm still not, you know, I'm still in this space of trying to understand and trying to increase empathy, but we all can only operate from, you know, where we are and who we are and what experiences life has taught us, our learned experiences. What are your thoughts, Quentin, on how does this movement feel similar or different from? times when America has rallied to bring elevate the voice of Black people in America? I mean, so I think it's important not always to look at it as how is it different, because there are differences, right? But I think it's important to understand that this is part of an outrage that's connected to a long history of struggle and oppression. Mm -hmm. So it's not as if the movement is different from you know, the demands are different, the way in which it sparks are different. But if you see this as an outrage from systematic oppression, a system of neoliberal capitalism, a system of militarizing the police, and that being a continuation of a long history, then you see that this is merely the new generation carrying a new torch mm. for the same fires that America never put out. And that's the thing. One thing that you can say that is different is I think that this killing has hit white America in a different way than previous killings have, so that the protests are far more diverse than previous protests. And I think that's a sign that you're seeing a different level of awakening than previous movements, right? And so I think that's an important thing to notice the difference, but it's also important to realize you don't have 
the abolition of slavery. You don't have the fighting against Jim Crow without also whites who were there fighting, dying for those causes as well. And I think that that's the understanding. But the thing too that I think is important is that this killing has to be put in a different context and a different frame than previous deaths. Not previous as in the last 20 years, previous as in like, let's say the lynchings, right? I think this is tied far deeper to a larger system than simply Jim Crow. Now, it's not saying Jim Crow wasn't systematic or horrific. It absolutely was. But I think with that, you had the clear lynching, getting rid of lynching laws. In this case, what you have is how are you going to rethink systematically the way in which we police, the way in which poverty is structured in the United States, the way in which there's a vast you know, inequality in wealth, which is systematically putting people in poverty and putting people of color disproportionately poor in poverty. And I think that is something that we have to wrestle with differently about this movement is that the way in which the system works is quite different and has to be analyzed in previous times. It's not simply an incident of, you know, a black man being basically lynched in the street by a cop putting his knee on the throat. It's far, that happened and it's absolutely horrific. But why is it that you have the over-policing of these areas? Why is it that you have not only disproportionate policing in Black community, but also police brutality amongst poor people in general? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. You know, as you're talking, I'm reflecting, you know, I'm having all sorts of self-consciousness coming up saying, you know, it's, it's a lot. It's a lot to think about, you know, how are we part of the problem? How are we part of the solution? I think one of the things is if we think about only being there at the moment of a protest, right, that misses the systemic part. The protest is simply the manifestation of a long history that is finally exploded. It's the explosion. But that's not really where the problem is. The problem is at the kind of gases that are leaking out that can be exploded. And that's the part for me is, are we dedicating our time to making sure that the least amongst us, whether it be along racial lines, whether it be class, gender, are always in a position in which they can be better off, then the kind of what we say and how we say it, it changes. Because for me, I look at it as, that's the life that I live. And I'm constantly thinking about it. It's what I wake up thinking. It's what I do for a career. It's just how I've bled this into my entire life of trying to think about understanding the problem, making sure I'm working with people to educate them about the problem and also figuring out how to mobilize and organize to address the problem. And I think that's the piece because that's where the hard work starts to come. How do you take this energy and mobilize it to actually create systemic change. Because it's not that the cop was racist. Yes, he was racist. But if we look, just stop there. It's like, oh, that's a bad person. We just need good people in those situations. No, but we also have to understand from the perspective of law enforcement, they are also taxed. They're they're completely underfunded. They also have to constantly police dilapidated communities with high crime that are systematically being built up because poverty has increased, because unemployment has increased. And so they are under stress itself. So it's not just 
placing a good person in there. The stress of the system is sort of making these situations so explosive. And if we're not paying attention on the systemic problems that are placing people in these vulnerable situations to both be the victimizer as well as the victim, then I think we miss the overall point of what's happening. And then all we do is get outraged about the the incident itself. Because, I mean, we should be outraged by the fact that over the last 30 years, inequality in the United States has grown tremendously more than we had at the Gilded Age in the 1920s. We're seeing more inequality now than we've ever seen in American history. But I mean, not only nationally, but also globally as well. These things affect access to schools, access to safe neighborhoods, healthcare. That's why people are in vulnerable situations. So if we look at George Floyd and connect this together, I think there's one thing to look at him as he was a black man lynched, but it's also to understand, let's assume he was committing a crime, right? But it was counterfeiting $20, right? What rich person goes about counterfeiting $20 to get food? They embezzle money if they commit crimes. That is a crime of poverty. So now the question is, why is it that a person is sitting there trying to counterfeit $20 to get food? What's happening in our country where they're in that vulnerable of a situation? And I think thinking of it just as a black man getting killed misses the larger context of why he was even in that situation in the first place. Mm-hmm. Absolutely agree. And I I think one of the good news, I think, from a systematic perspective is we do, although I know I understand the influence of money in politics, but we do have a representative democracy in the country, including voting for local leaders. And a lot of the issues we're talking about can be affected by local leadership. You know, I'm talking about the city councils and the, the mayors and the county infrastructure it's already starting to change, but if we pay attention at those levels and those those of us who are out on the streets and angry now and have been for year after year after year, if we focus on those and focus on voting in people into the local government power structure, we can start making some of those changes. We can't just focus on who the president is or who's, who our senator is. We've got to show up to, to vote for that local influence because a lot of these things are not, of course, the federal government can do a lot to impact this, but a lot of them are local jurisdiction programs and taxes and issues that we can be, we can be pointing in different directions. We can be pulling out of um, police department budgets and into supportive housing and addiction counseling and those sorts of things. We can be Doing um, DC actually does kind of quite a bit of wealth distribution, as you could call it that. The, the business taxes and income taxes on rich people in DC are pretty high, especially compared to lots of other countries. So, I mean, we can we can be addressing those issues at the local level, but that requires people to make their voices known at the local level as well. Yeah, yeah. I guess one thing that I have I've heard from both of you, Quentin. It sounded like you were saying they're underfunded police systems and we need to perhaps fund them. I'm not sure if that's what you said, but you said underfunded. And Liza, it sounded like you wanted to decrease funding in order to increase the dollars in programs at the local level. Did I hear that right? Yeah, I'm sure Quinn's going to say no, you didn't hear him right. (laughs) So, So it's not that they're, I'm not saying that they need more money, right? But it's when we look at policing, 
and the type of funding that they're getting and how they're getting it. So, for example, one of the reasons why you see the increasing militarization of the police is because you have the larger military industrial complex that then is selling these, you know, what the army no longer uses to police forces. And the police are saying, well, we do need X, Y, and Z. We can get this at a cheaper rate from the military than we can from, let's say, buying the goods privately. But that's also connected to a larger military industrial complex. I'm not saying that we should beef up the funding of police. In fact, I would agree at times you should defund policing, certain types of policing. But what I'm arguing for is we should have eliminated the systemic problems that require over-policing in and of itself. So it's not even a need to have increased body armor, cars like tanks, right, on the street. You don't need that because of the level of inequalities would decrease. So I think a lot of times we, we look at these issues and we look at them inside of the current prism that we already are operating with, either fund or don't fund, either affordable housing or not affordable housing, or gentrification, or you know, thinking about the way in which we can diversify cities. But we don't sort of look systemically as what needs to change in the system so that some of the larger problems there don't even need to be addressed in and of themselves, right? So rather than say having, you know, how do we give more money so that we have Section 8 housing or affordable housing? It's how do we rethink housing arrangements so that people have co-ownership where you don't even need affordable housing anymore, right? That's what I'm talking about on understanding the systemic part. And so why I agree with Liza on getting out to vote, I also think voting without a proper political education is irrelevant. It's casting a vote inside of a system you already know is corroded, which is why you see a lot of distrust in the system, low voter turnout, is because they believe the options on the table are already corroded options, and they don't even understand how to think about different options. And this is one of the things I think is important about, and I agree with building grassroots movement at the local level. But it has to be coupled with a political education. It has to be coupled with helping people understand the larger problem so then they can make sure that they're putting forth candidates who are representative of their best interests. And I would argue putting out more progressive candidates that are willing to challenge both the Democratic and the Republican corporatist parties to push forward parties and policies that are actually for the people, which includes fair and just policing, right? I would absolutely lean towards that. So it's not as if I want to, what I want to do is be careful that we don't simply fall in line of bashing police at the expense of acknowledging George Floyd's murder, right? Mm -hmm. Because I think police are under extreme conditions as well. And we have to be able to acknowledge their humanity and their dignity. So then we can think about how to create policies that reach across this divide or push at the real systemic problems in America. Mm, mm, well said. I agree that the that police are currently 
underfunded for the role they're being asked to play in confront a lot of the ills of our society in kind of at the worst point, the most extreme point, and with the least amount of training and support around those types of things. I mean, police are, they go to to a police academy and they're trained in police tactics and in the law. They're not social workers, right? They're not educators, because now we have all kinds of police in our in our education system. You know, so we're we are definitely underfunding them for what for the societal ills we're expecting them to be able to manage. Yeah, I worry about our police officers being underfunded. I think that there should be a higher demand for the job. I think that the job should be paid at a higher salary and that it should be a more desirable place of contributing to society so that we are recruiting and retaining the best out there. I worry that all of this dialogue right now is creating a job force that nobody would want to join. If you are a peacemaker and looking to be a protector of justice and supporting communities, you're unlikely to feel like the police is a place where you'd want to be identified as a person in that group. So I worry that this is causing a very big backlash on the the future of the industry. Well, and not just this. I mean, just a, a perpetual underfunding and, and under-respect for the professionalism of that job. What I would say is, yes, you should have an opportunity to be a police officer. But yes, you should have the proper training to be a police officer, right? And that means that we have to think of training in a far more expansive, not only training at the point of entry, but training throughout and that we all, we don't just train in military tactics. We also train in peacekeeping. We also train in community involvement. Like one of the things that I think is important is that if police are public servants, right, and they have a job in public servants, they also have a role in helping make sure that they help the public understand the value of their public service, right, mm-hmm. beyond just the act of policing. We think of it just in the point of enforcement. But I would think of it in the force of how do we think of policing as also a form of community building? And Mm -hmm. you think of this in the same way. And this is why I say it has to be connected to progressive movements in order to also protect their own profession. Right. Seeing the connection like the police should be outraged at the same systematic problems that are underfunding communities across the nation are the same processes that are underfunding the police department in and of itself. And if we don't see that connection, then it's hard to build the necessary alliances across the policing, across the non-sector of the the kind of NGO sector, across the public sector, to actually then bring into what Eliza was talking about, politicians who will actually make change. We have to see it mobilized and then connected to policies to politicians and to practices that ultimately are changing things. And I worry about this sort of pitting, you know, police against the community or even thinking that it's their fault, not the police or the police aren't smart enough. No, we are, especially workers in public sectors are stretched thin, right? And it's, why are they stretched thin? They're stretched thin is because we have a society with gross inequalities, We don't properly think about redistribution of wealth to the least amongst us. And thus policing now becomes the least expensive way to regulate the problem. And that's one of the things that people don't understand is also how you get the prison industrial complex. You have the rise in prison because, as I know people know about the statistics of how expensive prisons are, but actually 
prisons are the cheapest form of policing a crisis when you look at all the other options of rehabilitation and all. That's why you get a rise because we don't fund our public institutions and our public services enough to actually provide the means for us to deal with this larger crisis. Liza, I was listening to a conversation last night where the woman being interviewed was saying that racism should not be uncomfortable. Conversations like this should not be uncomfortable. They should be factual and there should shame should be removed from it. This is such a wide system issue. It's not a personal issue unless you are oblivious to it. But for those who are socially conscious and working towards progress, this shouldn't have to be such an uncomfortable conversation. Is there a way that we can take out the personal shaming and blaming and actually have a conversation without the human impact? I was pretty compelled by that. I can see where she's coming from, but I'm not sure that I agree. Do you believe that we can have a conversation about racism that isn't uncomfortable? Honestly, I don't mean to make an extreme blanket statement, but I feel like if you, the conversations I've had with some white people, they immediately get defensive as soon as you start talking about racism. And to me, that just strikes to the, to the heart of it. Like if you are, if you feel the need to defend yourself when racism comes up, then you need to have some introspective going on. When I talk about issues or when someone talks to me about issues of, of systemic racism in America, I don't get goosebumps in the back of my neck. Like I'm ready for a fight, right? Like I, it's, they are facts. I agree. But I don't know until people are, until white people especially are willing to look internally if that's their response, then I don't know how you remove that, that sensitivity from the conversation because they're the ones bringing it there. <laughs> So I agree with what the, the woman was saying, but I don't know how you move past it without just moving past it kind of generationally over time, or at least uh, with, a, with a better informed, better educated, better integrated and involved community over time. I don't know if you guys have other perspectives on that. I just, I don't know. Quentin, what do you think? I might slightly disagree with both the person that you were talking to and also Liza on this one. I think one of the things that ends up happening is on the discussion on race is we really don't take serious the defensive responses that white people may have because in many cases we we treat it as if they just don't want to understand the facts. They're just being defensive about it when a lot of times what ends up occurring is the conversation on race is just misframed and it's we need to be talking about something else. Let me give you an example. So when we think about we're talking about the unequal killing of black men, particularly, right, we leave it at the level of race. But one of the things that we don't also then talk about is that there are unequal killing of poor people across races. Right. So it is not if you look at the facts, it's not that simply Black people are being disproportionately harmed by the police. It's also that poor people are being disproportionate, which means poor white people, right? And that a lot of times white people are saying, well, what about the pain and, and harm that I face in my life? Who is giving voice to that pain? And that's a real pain. And it means that we have to start understanding how to think, not that we forget race, we shouldn't forget it, but frame it in a way so that when race is the problem, that's what we're talking about. But when it's compounded by class injustices, that's also what we're talking about. 
mm-hmm. because that then opens up the dialogue to have a different discussion where we can then talk about how policies, practices, and procedures would help even poor whites as well as poor blacks, right? And I think that one of the things I always worry about on the discussion simply on race is that facts get cherry-picked, right? We look at the disproportionate, whatever fact it is, adding income, educational attainment, and then focus on the racial component. But we don't think broader on what's causing that and what's causing that systematically. So talk to a number of white people about this and explain to them how class impacts and they're like, oh, that makes a lot more sense. Mm. That helps understand why I can't get a job. That helps understand why I'm systematically underpaid or while, you know, the my likelihood of moving out of poverty is low, mm-hmm. which is why I'm always sympathetic for, you know, white people. A lot of times I have more in common with the poor white person than I do with rich liberal white person. Why? Because the, the material circumstances are similar, right? Like I don't live in the material circumstances of, you know, what rich white liberals or even rich black people live in, right? But once we see it that way, and then we're like, the material circumstances are very similar, it's a lot easier to have those conversations because they don't feel as if you're not acknowledging their pain and suffering. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I hear you. I, I think that um, the people in particular that I've been talking about lately, talking with lately, did come from a, they're white people and they came from a poor background but they themselves have pulled themselves up by their own bootstraps, right? And now they're solidly middle class or upper middle class. And they're the ones I struggle with the most. They're the most defensive ones, I guess I would want to say, in my personal interactions. I, I hear you, the people who are still, you know, struggling on the, on the income scale have more kind of solidarity across the lower class and lower middle class. It's the people who feel like they really did this on their own and they have something to lose that are the hardest for me to connect with and have hope for. <laughs> and so there's where I sort of dis- sort of disagree with the person that Lindsay was talking about, which is like, it's mainly about the facts and evidence, right? It's not simply about the facts and evidence. It's also about drawing the lines on understanding who are adversaries in this. Because there are people that adamantly will fight against progressive policies. And it's absolutely important to understand who they are, right? And why they're doing that. Because then we should try, I don't believe in shaming people. So it's not an act of how do you publicly shame them, but also it's pushing them at the inconsistency of their own moral compass, right? Mm. That's what it is. There's a moral inconsistency with what they're saying and what they've done and the overall facts. But sometimes it's because there are people that are invested in the status quo. They have an investment in the status quo moving this way and continuing to move this way. And that's a real investment. They're not, some people will not give that investment up. And this is where it is a struggle. It is a fight. And it's not one that you simply can win over with good reasons and good evidence. I believe you build coalitions with good reasons and good evidence, right? And you build with people who are willing to be persuaded or willing to look at the evidence or willing to have education. And then it's the time 
where you lock down and you have to fight, right? You have to kind of dig your heels in and understand that it's at this point that there's a collision, right? And there's a collision between people who want to maintain a system of dominance and people that want to change. And I think they're not going to be convinced with evidence or with reason because there's too much at stake for them. Yeah, I think you have to look at the heart of a human being and saying, where's that coming from? And my personal belief system is that for the majority of humans, it's coming from a place of scarcity, of fear, wanting to protect themselves, their wholeness, their access to happiness. And there's a lot to be said for what's the human experience of having privilege or not having privilege. And how does that impact your sense of safety in the world? And I think there's got to be a layer of complexity that we have compassion for, for those who see that there's oppression and that there is an injustice and that the scales aren't balanced. They may have the privilege and they may feel a feeling of wanting to protect that for their safety and for their children's safety, which I would argue is survival of the fittest. It's animal instincts at the core, human expression which is not something that you can really label as good or bad. You have to label it as a survival mechanism. And so then figuring out how can you actually get into that feeling of fear and protectiveness for your safety, for your power, and understanding how in the grand scheme of things, this is unequitable, unsustainable, and hurtful to others. Because I think that there's an element where many, many people of power and privilege would say, I do not want to hurt anyone. I also don't want to be in the position of severe risk either. Well, I would say yes, but it's also the question, are they willing to then push for the policies that don't allow them to have their privilege in the first place, right? Right. Here's the question. It's one thing to say, I don't want to hurt anybody, but it's another thing to say, I'm going to institute the policies that that will stop this. So for example, how much does it take? Like how much am I going to have to give up and how much will I have to suffer? Okay, so and that's where these conversations get very scary because it's a slippery slope where nobody actually has a lot of answers. So it, it depends on a couple of things. One, it depends on do we have an understanding of the alternatives that are being proposed, right? So whatever policy, the alternative, and what's the risk assessment to transitioning to that policy? Because it's not as if it's risk-free. It's not right. as if we know what's going to happen. When I think about people who have an investment I also think, are they really investing in the infrastructure to think about alternatives? So I think about like Jeff Bezos. So Jeff Bezos just puts on Amazon, all Black Lives Matter, right? But then turns around and pays zero in taxes. Like there's a contradiction. If they matter, then why aren't you paying taxes to help them matter? Or even like Bill Gates. Like I think about all the money that Bill Gates dumps in the philanthropy, which I think some, especially in education, is, is problematic, right? But- what kind of investment are you putting into actually helping people design policies that would eliminate, that would be the systemic change needed? So if it's only at the level of dealing with the crisis as it appears and not at the level of thinking systemically about changes, there's a distrust. And this is what happens. Like This is why Trump has a lot of support and Bernie had a lot of support from a similar base is because there is this distrust in the top percent and what they do in the world, right? They just distrust the system. They believe that it's faulty. They believe that it's corroded. And I think that if we're not 
really attuned to the pain and suffering people are feeling and the, what they do to claw out of that, you know, it's hard to relate. And I think this even goes to people who sort of have this pull themselves up by the bootstrap mentality. Yeah, I find that sort of a faulty way to look at social mobility, right? Because it's statistically just not true, right? Yes, you may be able to get out as an individual, but that doesn't show that you can then aggregately get people out by the same path, right? But it's also about how do we strategically think about resources so that we're making systemic change. Yeah, I think that it's interesting to consider leadership and philanthropists are leaders. So what is the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation doing? What about Jeff Bezos as an individual and as a philanthropist? I certainly think that your framing around racism versus classism is well well said. And is it that you know Jeff Bezos is making a tremendous profit during this time? And how is he putting his funds into the community to support the community? And how is it that we're making change from you know seeds, planting the right seeds rather than putting on band-aids? So how are we changing communities by empowering them either through education, policy change, or opportunity to access? But I want to say there's a there there are antagonistic relationships here. What I mean by that is you do not have Jeff Bezos being as rich as he is without having people being as poor as they are, right? right. You cannot simply say, how do we just have him be nicer with his money? It's how do we undermine the system that allows him to gain so much wealth in the first place? Mm-hmm. Because then that would mean that you are providing the necessary safety nets and institutional orders so that people don't become poor. Now, this mm-hmm. isn't to say people shouldn't be rich or wealthy. It's that we shouldn't have such growth inequalities in the land of such wealth. There is no justification for us to have this much wealth and this much inequality and poverty at the same time. Mm -hmm. That means you have to be willing to get rid of the system. The reason why I worry about that is because if we leave it just at the individual level, it sort of breeds into this sort of libertarian, well, I pulled myself up by the bootstrap. I should be able to do what I want with my money. And if I want to give it, I, I don't. The problem with that is, is it, is it allows the person who has the money to be able to circumvent the democratic process. And what they are doing is when you're taxed properly or the money is properly taxed through a government, the people regulate where it goes. When you can circumvent that, then that means you're able to use your resources sometimes to undermine public services. So Bill Gates is a good example of this. Bill Gates would invest in a series of small schools because that was the hot thing in education. And in Cleveland, what he did is he invested in some of the small schools in Cleveland and they broke up the schools into these smaller units. One of the things they found out that it wasn't as feasible as he thought, it didn't work. So he then took his money away. But what ends up happening is now Cleveland is stuck with all these small schools that they now have to fund right. and figure out, especially if you can take out your funds in other ways. And I know people in sort of the nonprofits here also fear this where they have to morph their missions to, you know, in a sense, 
the finances available and people have interest in what they want to see nonprofit organizations do. Absolutely. And it's a it's a power play of whether the donor is going to influence where the money goes or if the nonprofit is able to determine where the money goes. And yes. is it going to overhead or is it going to this innovative, exciting, shiny object of a new project, a new program? Yeah. And that's the that's a problem I see as being major when a donor is very interested in just seeing new and exciting things happening at a nonprofit when really what is needed is baseline funding for operations, keeping the lights on, paying their employees so that they're retaining them and moving the ball forward with a concerted and slow and steady effort, in my opinion. Yes. Now, that's not saying that there's not place for that. And innovation is important, especially like policy arm extension for some of the nonprofits that have that capability and that mission drive. But yeah, I see what you mean in that there are there are scenarios where folks are trying to find solutions, they throw money into it, or they put up infrastructure. And then if it doesn't work, stepping out of it has to be done so carefully because you can't leave a system in shambles and now having to deal with something you played with, you, you tried out. Yes. I see what you're saying. Yeah. So I was going to say something uh, kind of from a few minutes ago. I do have real hope in the kind of our, I guess you can call us millennial generation, even though we're old millennials, the millennial and after generations for a couple of reasons. One, the availability of information, which includes misinformation, but also just the ability to get to access information. You know, if I had grown up in a world where I had the internet, you know, as a, as a younger kid and throughout middle school and beginning of high school in my little hometown, I would have been exposed to a lot more. And I think that'd be a good thing because I'd have a, a broader, have had a broader view of the world earlier. But then also I have hope in this, in our generation and generations after us, because I really do believe in the generational effect where every, there's a, a theory about every 80 years or so in American politics, we've had kind of significant paradigm shifts or upheavals and that's and we're due for one mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> since world war ii essentially was was about 80 years ago and our generation having come out of schooling in the financial crisis and then having go, going through the covid crisis and then having seen these years and years of videos of police brutality against the black community i think we have a much more community-oriented perspective as a generation across America than the individualist perspective of our boomer parents or our all our close to baby boomer parents. I, I really think we're kind of coming around to that community-oriented perspective that had happened last time in the post-World War II 50s and 60s, which, you know, we're not like panacea of awesome times, right? But it was a shifting, a paradigm shift in some of our collective understanding of these issues and how we're all in this together. So you had the civil rights movement, you had significant economic restructuring with LBJ's Great Society, you had a lot of big paradigm shifts that happened or changes that happened in that era after World War II. And I'm hopeful that it's really going to happen this time, that it's, you know, we're due for that 80 or 60 to 80 year shift. And we are more in this together and more community oriented as a generation than the previous couple before us. So I I do think, I don't know exactly how much hope to put in that, but I do think that this is not just going to go back to what has been. We might not get it right, but we are 
more poised for change with our generation coming into more of our power, political and economic power. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I totally share that perspective. And I think that a lot of the folks who've been leading the charges on the protests are even younger than us. And it is that mentality of we're in this together. We need to really be thinking about power and about environment, climate, about gender, about sexuality. There's just this awakening of the next level of how we are as beings, human beings in the world. Yes and no. So I don't believe in the because kind of shit because it's like this this progressive narrative of history. Like history will all you know eventually progress, right? Just give it time, you'll see progression. Which I'm not sure that's always true. But also, even if it is true, you would have to think the civil rights movement would mark a major shift, right? And the massive shift in how we view the LGBT community would view that. Like growing up, if you told me now gay rights would be a right, growing up, I'd like stop lying to yourself. Uh, it was unheard of at that time. Uh, so even if that I were I worry, have we already exhausted the energy? But the reason why I don't want to leave it at that point is because I think that hope is something that has to be deliberately nourished and then cultivated in order to make sure it heads in a progressive direction. It can't just be left there because what ends up happening is, is that hope can easily turn into a sense of despair and desperation. And at that point, you feel hopeless, right? You once wanted something so much, you saw justice, and you feel that nothing can change. And once that occurs, the tipping point doesn't always go in a positive direction. The tipping point can also go into a more effective Donald Trump, right? Which right. is a more effective authoritarian figure who's a neo-fascist. We have to be careful that it the hope has to be something that we're consciously and deliberately educating so that people understand the larger problem, which is why I think that it, the generation is showing a lot of promise because we should be cheering that they're out there in the street. We should be happy that they are far more aware than when I was growing up as a generation, people in my generation, which is true. But being woke is not the same as being able to turn that into sustained social change. And that's the part that's needed is can we get there with sustained social change. I always remain hopeful that democracy can reinvent itself, but I never become so hopeful where it blunt, where I gain this sense of optimism that it will inherently just do that. Fair perspective. So what are some of the strategies that you think that we can apply that are before policy change? So how can a hopeful person who is trying to be woke more than just on Insta, what are they doing that can actually be moving towards progress nowadays? I'll go first. I honestly think get involved in your local community, your local leadership. So of course, the, the nonprofit does a nonprofit sector does a lot of wonderful work, and I do think we should we should engage there. But I mean civic engagement. I mean find out who your like your area representative is, who your kind of alderman or whatever they're called, and then who your city council people are. Find out if they. If there are ways that you can personally get involved, you can you can 
volunteer to co-lead a committee that's addressing these issues for your council person. It sounds like Mary Eliza was involved in student government growing up and <laughs> she waves too much in this, but those, those really do create platforms for different voices to be involved and for different voices to be elected. So I 100% agree with community engagement and civic engagement, right? Get involved, right? But one of the things that I would recommend is find out where are the different organizations that are also facilitating these conversations around the structural issues and get involved there, right? Get involved in the organizations that are trying to reshift the conversation that we're having. So then that way you also get the education you need to understand the complexity of the problem in and of itself, right? And involvement is crucial. And this is why I think it's really important that we look at this moment as also the opportunity to think about form of political education. And this was what was crucial about the civil rights movement, about that movement. The key thing is they understood there has to be an educational component built into the movement to teach people about the complexity of the problem. And you can put in place progressive politicians because without the progressive politicians in place, pushing policy and pushing change is almost impossible because you're constantly going through an uphill battle. So I agree with you, knowing who your local officials are, local organizations, but at bare minimum, if you're gonna be on YouTube, go get educated. There are many places on YouTube that you can look out for, which are doing really, really wonderful work, progressive work on understanding these problems. You know, there's one show, it's called Rising, and it's by The Hill, which is the, I think, the newspaper in D.C. And this is a very, very thoughtful, thoughtful sort of YouTube news outlet with a progressive and a conservative. But they do not fall along party lines in any way, shape or form that are talking about these issues. And there are multiple other sources that you can find out about that then you can get a better understanding of the larger problem. I agree with both of your points that it's very important to increase your engagement politically, civically, in your community. I also believe that that's not capable. That's not something in everybody's cards. Some people are not capable of doing that. They don't have the time. They don't have the intellect. They don't have the passion. And they still want to be part of the movement forward. They don't necessarily have this as their front and center life's priority. And I don't think that that's wrong either. I don't think that everybody has to be politically minded. But I do think that there are ways that we can all make shifts in our behavior, especially around our consumerism, around our statements, around how we talk to people, who we talk to, even just making a point of inclusivity as you're out in the park. Perhaps that's a very, very Pollyanna-ish response. But I think that there's got to be a dialogue that opens up to making racial inequity, class inequity and the issues that we're dealing with today, that it's got to be palatable and it's got to be think, a, a step that people can actually take rather than if I were to listen in here, I, I've got to get involved in government. I personally would say I don't I feel so unequipped to be in that room that I'd like to study and you know, follow the resources that are out there. But it seems like it's such a leap from who I am and how I practice my day to day that it would turn me off. So I've got to have other ways that I can get involved and do good that are not you know, sitting on a board. 
in regarding policy change. So you may not be fully involved in politics, but can you do an outreach where you at least maybe once a week or once a month cook food for an organization or find somebody who you then bring into your house and bring over to have these conversations? What are the ways in which you can also make your home that kind of space so that these conversations occur? If you really want to tackle like the daily systemic racism, you also have to tackle your daily practices. Like, and this is one of the things I know talking to a lot of black people, we don't like the woke signaling and all that crap. We want to know, listen, if we're on the street, will you say hello to me? Have a conversation, That's spark just a normal conversation, like I'm a normal human being. And then if race comes up, you can normally have that. Con- that is so impactful to understanding where you are than, you know, the person that goes to city council and then you walk down the street and they don't want to talk to you. You're like, oh, okay. <laughs> but I think thinking about that part, all I'm saying is there are layers to this, right? And we have to look at the layers and pragmatically what people can do at each different layer, right? And then think about change in that regard. So then that they coalesce into, okay, so you think more at the government level, Lindsay thinks more at the kind of community local level. Oh, but Lindsay may have somebody who's interested in connecting something that they're doing at the local level to policy changes, right? Mm-hmm. It's those connections that bring things together to take the really small local part and translate it into larger movements that push for change, which is why I'm saying it's important to appreciate to broaden the perspective so that we make it as inclusive as possible. That way we don't exclude people simply by the way in which we frame the problem. Mm. I love that you said that. And I, uh, you know, I tear up and actually bring this, this next layer into it, but it's what you were talking about. And I was also thinking about that exactly at the same time, Quentin is about how are we treating people on the streets in San Francisco? We are riddled with, street poverty and homelessness and also with extreme wealth. I mean, it's one of the most disparate communities we have in the country and it continues to be exacerbated. And I know many of the high net wealth individuals here and most of the people that I've interacted with want to find a solution. They want to find a way to have homelessness address. They don't want disparity. They don't want others to be suffering. They have come into wealth, whether it's because of their tech company that they have strategically aligned, they've worked the system, they've gotten the payouts, they've, you know, the added the coins up to make a mass amount of, of wealth very quickly. So it's an interesting time to be in San Francisco. It's an interesting time to be alive and to be considering have and have not. When I walk down the street and I look into the eyes of some other people on the streets, it breaks my heart. Like I literally can be in tears instantaneously to see the suffering and not knowing the solution to, to it, not knowing how to solve the situation, how to solve the problem. The only resolve that I have been able to stand behind of the many that I have considered is fundamentally every single day waking up and looking at people, looking looking them at the eye and giving them the dignity and grace of being a human being and a smile or offering whatever you can offer. And I don't 
I don't want to shift too far down the line of homelessness as a, as a pillar of our conversation. But I do think that there is an element that can be taken from that in that we don't always talk, we don't always walk the walk and we don't always extend human kindness, somebody on the street or somebody passing us by in an elevator. And on the other hand, I could have a very, you know, somebody who's put together looking dressed to the nines that also, you know, you may or may not make eye contact with and you may hold resentment towards and just because of what they're displaying on the outside. So is it homeless or is it wealth? You know, and how are you making judgments about those people as you cross them if you're not in that grouping or if you are even? How are we judging people based on instance of connection, of visual cues, and to know that every single human, wealthy, poor, or otherwise, has suffering and has an identity that's beyond what's being represented. It's so important that these conversations come back to like, how can I make a change in who I am every morning, in addition to how I'm leading or how I'm using my voice in a strategic way towards justice or change? I agree. I agree. Absolutely. You said it well. I agree. This is awesome. I <laughs> I could keep going, but I am feeling like very, very aware that it's been two hours. <laughs> well, I'm sorry. I hate to stop this. I got to run. I got to pick up my little <laughs> before they overcharge me for being late. <laughs> well, Quentin, so much love to you Absolutely. and Liza to you, of course, as well. And thank you both so much for joining us. It's such a nice conversation. We'll be in touch. No problem. And stay in contact. You too, Liza. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. Have a good one, you guys. All right. Bye. Thank you. With this latest valuable episode, we'd love to thank you for joining us on the Creating Community for Good podcast. If you found today's show valuable, simply visit our website, creatingcommunityforgood.com to leave a review as well as to get access to additional resources and relevant links from this show. Stay tuned for more episodes.